Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tortoise. It feels as though August is coming to an end fast. No shortage of stories this week, the week ending Friday the 25th of August. We took time, as you may have noticed, to try and make sense of the apparent death of Evgeny Prigozhin, what that means for Putin, for Ukraine, for Russia and the world, in a special news meeting yesterday. But to consider what else is out there, I'm joined by Tortoise editors Jess Winch and Keith Blackmore. Jess, welcome. Hello. Keith, very good to have you. Nice to be here. I noticed that in your role as self-appointed president of the Mary Earps fan club your savaging of nike has worked has it yes it looks like they've they've done a u-turn and they're now going to sell replica uh, mary earps goalkeeping jerseys so are you satisfied no only in limited quantities so they say as if to spoil their nice announcement today they've said that yeah ben bradshaw welcome it's very very nice to have you too if you're listening for the first time to the news meeting we have for a while now, held these conversations to try and make sense of the story that we think really should be leading the news. And part of it is intended to be a check on the groupthink in journalism. And in order to check on our own groupthink, we're making a point of inviting people in to suggest the stories that they really think should be leading the news. Ben was the culture secretary in the Labour government, uh, has, I think, since 97 been the Labour MP for Exeter. Um, we've known each other a long while back even when you were BBC's Berlin correspondent. Uh, so welcome back to Life in Front of Thank the Mic. <laughs> and welcome to you. Welcome to the Tortoise News Meeting. Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the Wagner Group, was on board the private jet that crashed near Moscow. President Putin appears to have broken his silence. Over a million tonnes of wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant has begun to be released into the Pacific Ocean. Our moon mission, this success, belongs to all of humanity. Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. We don't need to bring in people without experience. All right, so what should be leading the news? Ben, why didn't you go first? Long story short, in a sentence, what's your story? Uh, the extraordinary story of the theft of potentially thousands of priceless artefacts from the British Museum and the question as to whether there was an attempted cover-up to stop that story coming out. Keith? Uh, red cards all round. Mine is the story of Manchester United footballer Mason Greenwood and the mess that has surrounded uh, his departure from the club. Red cards all round, as in no one comes out of it well. Correct. Jess? Mine is the elephant not in the room, the Republican <laughs> primary debate. Oh, now, there we're going. And the use of the Republican GOP symbol, the elephant. You've done very nicely. OK, for that, you go first. Eight candidates all took to the stage. Very notably absent one Donald Trump, who is currently leading in the polls by a 
greater proportion than the other candidates have combined. And it was, I think, a really important glimpse into what Republican politics can look like without Donald Trump. It was the first chance you really had and that voters really had to see who an alternative to Trump could be in any kind of scenario, whether it's in one of the 91 counts in four separate criminal cases that Trump is currently facing that could in any way prevent him standing. And I think that the media has slightly fallen into the trap of becoming so obsessed by Trump stories, it's very easy to forget that there are other options that voters may have to choose from. And was it and just when you saw it, did you come to a view personally about who stood out on Wednesday night? Or even did the media, the other papers come out with a view on who was quote unquote the winner? So I think there have been there's been a number of assessments on who the winners and the losers are. The person who was most searched for online after the debate was Vivek Ramaswamy, who was polling at 0% when he entered the race and is now on around 10%. So he he's definitely seen as someone who came out of the debate better than he went into it, which is really, I think, all the candidates were were looking to do. He's sort of 38 years old, presenting himself very much as the outsider, as the man who is most forcefully advocating the Trump positions. So he was the one that was very um, forceful in saying that America should not be sending any more aid to Ukraine. Uh, Ron DeSantis said that, governor of Florida as well. But Vivek Ramaswamy seemed to be just better at getting that point across. He's more articulate, more energetic, more enthused. And he was also making these points that these are all the existing politicians. What America needs is not politicians who are running away from something, but it's time for America to run towards something. He was very good at getting these one-line sound bites which will get him, I think, a lot of pickup in the sort of weeks and months ahead. But interestingly, I think Mike Pence seems to have had a very good night. He's not known for being a particularly charismatic personality. He came out well on stage. Nikki Haley as well, who I don't think in her stint previously in the Trump administration was known for being particularly a particular globalist, actually came out very, very strongly um, in favour of supporting Ukraine. She attacked Ramaswamy very, very well, I think, um, when he was advocating to reduce US support. I think the surprising Ron DeSantis was going in there. I think he's the second in in the polls and he was expecting to be attacked from all sides. He wasn't, which maybe tells you a lot about how people are starting to reassess their opinion of his campaign. Uh, so it threw up a few interesting things. Ben, what do you think about TV debates and just even at a local level hustings? Do they make any difference? Not really, no. And if my role is to challenge the groupthink, I mean, I have this rather old-fashioned or maybe not old-fashioned view, but idiosyncratic view that um, we give far too much prominence to American politics all the time at times when it doesn't matter and not nearly enough to the politics of our near neighbours in Europe. However, I think this is a this is a significant event. There are going to be so many more of these significant events. And I suspect that, I mean, as somebody who's reasonably well-informed and reasonably interested in America, I don't even know who all of these people are. Um, I don't really need to know until the field is narrowed. Um, and there's going to be so much of this over the next year. There's already been so much. So that would be my argument against this being the lead. Keith? Um, I, I think it is pretty important. I, I thought it was quite interesting that we, there are the beginnings of signs of, them, of at least one or two of the candidates standing up against Trump. Mm-hmm. That does strike me as the single most important story in the world is yeah. Trump's There was a really campaign. good moment about halfway through because even Fox didn't want it to be all about Trump. They kept it about 10 minutes in a two-hour debate. But in that period, they said 
if Trump as a candidate was found, was convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party nominee? And Ramaswamy and several others immediately hand shot up. Then you saw Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis kind of look at what everyone else was doing before putting their <laughs> hand out, which kind of tells you a lot about them. And then Chris Christie kind of seemed like he was and then kind of waggled his finger and said he was not actually putting his hand up. But also he seemed a bit confused. The only person who didn't at all was Asa Hutchinson, who's the former governor of Arkansas. One thing that's intrigued me in the run-up to this has been the efforts by Fox executives to get Trump to participate. Yeah. And one of the things that tells you is there's not such a thing as a norm anymore. You can't say, look, I'm a Republican candidate and therefore I'm expected to show up for a debate. What does it tell us about rules in politics? Because Trump's calculation had been, I'm the front runner. I don't need to show up. I can go and do my own thing, my Tucker Carlson interview, try and make hay from showing up in the courthouse in Atlanta. Has he got that calculation perhaps wrong? Has he given a chance to others to shine? I I hope so, but I'm doubtful. At the moment, I think this was an important moment for other candidates to put themselves forward. And in a way, I kind of hope they get to do that again, that Trump continues to to make this bet. But from what I can tell, I think that Trump was still the winner from the debate by not turning up. He's so far ahead. He dominates everything so entirely that he, he still won. I thought that, I thought it was another point actually out of the Fox business. I, I noticed I was reading I think in the New York Times today they were saying that the Trump episode came exactly at nine p.m. Eastern time. So in other words, they put it into the second hour of the debate because that was the peak viewing time. Mm. And and that is the feature of the Trump era, isn't it? It's entertainment. This it's, it's right. not. It's not politics. It makes an interesting point about not just about politics as well, but about the media. Because if you were a Republican presidential nominee, what? five, ten years ago. There's You're clamouring n- you, to get on. Everyone's getting on Fox. Fox yeah. is the gatekeeper. Yeah. Whereas now Fox is interesting in and of itself because it is the, it's sort of having a, a long-running feud with Trump mm. and they don't quite know how to handle that as a network either. And rather than going on cable news, Trump's going on X, the only other problem formerly known the story, as Twitter. The, the, only, the only other problem with the story, Jess, is it may be, even if you are interested in, the U, in US politics, that it's the mugshots. Giuliani's mugshot, the Trump mugshot in Atlanta that mm-hmm. ends up being the picture of the image of the week, even more than the Republican nomination. But we'll get, I think, a sense of that in polls as things play out next week. Ben, let's come to your story. Tell us what's actually going on there, because this started out almost as a fancy that story. Curator you've never heard of selling off trinkets that you don't know exist. But you think there's more to it than that? Well, clearly there have been some journalists sniffing around at this for a while. But yes, I'm British Museum, probably the most famous museum perhaps in the world, actually. One of the things we still do well, museums, culture, arts in this country. Um, Allegation is that um, hundreds, if not thousands, of prices of artefacts have disappeared over a number of years. And it began several years ago. Uh, The British Museum management were tipped off by a... Uh, by an antiques dealer who who had bought stuff off off eBay, um, um, if, if you believe what he says. And uh, um, the suggestion is that not only were these items stolen, a lot of them were destroyed just for their precious materials, the gold or the jewels that they contained. Um, potential, potentially very serious reputational damage for the British Museum. Its, its director has already announced his leaving uh, unexpectedly with no other job to go to uh, and a story that has lots of way to run and lots of other talking points that you could attach to it. How serious genuinely is the reputational damage? I've seen there are quite a few 
memes that have begun. I saw a wonderful picture of people who'd posed with a plastic bag in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa in such a way that they were <laughs> attention British Museum. There's a bit of that, but Nigeria's made an argument that this underlines their case for the return of the Benin Bronzes. Uh, I understand Greece made the argument too that the Parthenon marbles, the Elgin marbles, should be heading their way back to Greece, all the more so given thefts at the British Museum. Truth is, if it's one curator selling off the odd piece, this is not really a structural problem in security. So how much is that Nigerian and Greek response opportunistic, do you think? Well, it, it may not be a structural problem in security, although one does, does hear that, that the, the extent of the British Museum collection uh, and, and the challenges around resourcing and staffing means that they haven't catalogued all their items, unlike other museums. So they don't know if they're losing stuff necessarily. Yeah. Um, so they're quite vulnerable uh, to this sort of single loan actor. Uh, do you think, just, can I answer one thing, Ben? Do you think that what actually happened here is that because they didn't know what stuff they had, they didn't know what stuff was missing? So Hartwig Fisher's response to this collector, which is, no, everything's accounted for, is a bureaucratic error rather than a complacency problem. Possibly. Uh, and that the details of that would hopefully come out in one of these independent reviews which is going on. But there was a more worrying uh, element to this, I think, in that George Osborne, who comes out of this rather well as, as the chairman of the trustee, pressed twice Hartwick Fisher on this issue and was twice pushed back. Um, and he had a whistleblower coming directly to him via another trustee. So it does look as if there was a sort of institutional lack of inquisitiveness, at, at the very least, to, to, to look into this properly. And the museum's job is to keep these items safe for the world and for us and for the future, future humanity. And you would think it was part of their basic job to make sure that these items that you literally can't put a value on because they're so priceless could simply be disappearing in such large numbers and ending up on eBay. And where does this leave us in terms of the process on the Parthenon marbles, the Elgin marbles? Well, the Greek government, and I don't really blame them, are absolutely milking this for all it's worth, of course, because <laughs> one of the old traditional arguments uh, for us not giving the Elgin marbles back was that the Greeks couldn't be trusted to keep them safe. Well, I mean, so that you can understand the, the schadenfreude that the Greeks are indulging in at the moment. But I, I think there's, a, I mean, I should declare an interest here because I'm actually on the committee that is uh, trying to campaign for some some kind of cultural exchange that would enable uh, the um, Elgin marbles to be displayed where they originally were in this wonderful new new museum in the path, at the Parthenon in Athens. Um, but I think that case is very strong anyway. I'm not sure it's made any stronger by this. Um. Can, can you just explain one thing about that? I was told that actually on the UK side, we were quite close to a deal on an exchange, i.e. George Osborne was quite comfortable with it. The exchange avoids having to go through parliament or an act of parliament. The issue was on the Greek side and Mitsotakis's side in terms of securing support amongst Greek politicians. I don't quite understand why if the marbles might be going back even on a loan or exchange basis, Greek politicians are hostile to that. The, the block is the question of ownership and whether you could come to a deal where ownership was still left vague because the Greeks insist they own it, the British Museum insists we own it. The re-election of Mitsotakis, who's had several uh, detailed conversations with George Osborne about this, uh, was generally regarded uh, as potentially helpful in this regard. We now have to see whether he can sell the sort of deal that George Osborne's been working on to the Greek pu public and the Greek parliament. Jess, is this a 
comic episode of Antiques Roadshow, or is this actually <laughs> a moment in geopolitics? It could be a bit of both, which what makes it. I think that's what makes that's it so great good. Who done it? It's a I was wonderful who done it. And I didn't. I hadn't. I had no idea that a, a place like the British Museum wouldn't even know what it has, that it hasn't catalogued everything in its possession, as you say, when it has such a reputation that it enforces of being the place that historic and valuable artefacts will be safe. Well, if you've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, you'll know (laughs) that there's an enormous... I mean, actually, when we did that investigation into the Ethiopian tablets, I don't know whether you ever heard this, Ben, we... When the discussion was live around or continues to be live around the Parthenon marbles, the Elgin marbles, someone who worked at the British Museum said, no, you think that's a story? Go and take a look at the Ethiopian tablets, which are so holy in the Ethiopian church, assumed to be parts of the original Ark of the Covenant, that not only can they not go on display, no one who works at the British Museum can see them. So they're held in secret exactly like that you know, huge warehouse at the end of Raids of the Lost Ark. Keith, what do you think of this story? Is it is it an edge story or is there something more significant to it? I think there is something more significant to it. I mean, I suspect at the British Museum they, they, they've all been feeling guilty about all the stuff that they've, they're have they not showing people and they don't want to address this dark problem they've got sitting down there. Because can I quibble with one thing, other thing, Ben, which is it's an amazing whodunit. The, the curious thing about this story is that The British Museum is not explaining what happened or who did it. And yet, at the same time, the individual who's been named is effectively being fingered for it. So what does that tell you about the way in which institutions approach the idea of justice being done and being seen to be done? Well, I think in terms of the who who done it, there's still the motive, which is fascinating, I think. I mean, what would a motive be for this? You know, and we don't know who it was. In fact, we can talk about this because there have been no charges brought. Um, it's helpful. Uh, but there is a police investigation going on, so I think we have to be a bit careful about what we say. But I think, Is that right? The police are now called in? Yeah, yeah no. The poli- well, the police have been investigating since, since early this year. Um, and my understanding is they asked the British Museum to keep quiet about that because they didn't want to tip anybody off about the investigation. So that investigation will come will come to an end, and uh, somebody will or will not be will not be charged. But I think the red, reputational issue and the parallels with the NHS and scandals, where institutions don't understand that in order to defend their reputation effectively, they have to be open and self-critical rather than close ranks and try to hush things up is is deeply frustrating for someone who served as a minister and saw these things happening in the health service time and time again. But you do also need to figure out ways, Ben, don't you, that organizations and people in authority in organizations can protect their colleagues from vexatious complaints that you feel like you stand up for the people that you work with. I do understand the tension in all of that. Yeah. Um, I guess we're going to come to that. <laughs> Questions of management and teams. Let's take a beat and then we're going to go to uh, Keith's story. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Keith, before we actually get to the Man United case, actually... We had quite a lot of response from your suggestion about leading on the Lionesses and Mary Earps at the beginning of the week. And one person wrote in called Dr. Crystal Hyden. And I just want to read to you uh, what she said because she'd listened to Monday's episode and that conversation we had about whether you do or don't adapt women's football. And she sent us this. There was a mention of not wanting to tip into chauvinism, but by focusing on the size of the pitch, goal, ball, boot, and goalie, you risk framing women's athletes as if they're just small men. Leveling the field can only begin when you understand who the players are. On Monday's show, James noted that perhaps the Lionesses, quote, could make some changes to actually lead the way. But, she says, they already lead the way when it comes to menstruation. Perhaps the biggest distinction between male and female athletes, yet one that never entered your conversation. The players speak frankly about how periods impact performance, have led the movement to eliminate white shorts from kits, and are one of the first to use menstrual cycles as a training metric. But even this elite team only began systematically tracking cycles in the past few years. And it's true. I mean, not not just us. It's been barely covered. All true. I'd like to say that I blame the editor for taking out my mention of menstruation in the, uh, in the podcast. But um, my main preoccupation with the team's health, as it were, was about um, anterior cruciate ligament injuries, which yeah. happen far more uh, to women footballers, six times as often as they do to men, and how s- science is beginning to work out reasons for doing it. Thank you to Crystal Hyden for writing in. Keith, your story this time, Mason Greenwood. Well, my my story is an unhappy one of a young Manchester United footballer who was about uh, 18 months ago accused of very serious um, sexual offences and has not played since that time. The charges were dropped for reasons that we can't really go into. Can we just get into that just before we go any further? What are the ground rules by which we can have this conversation? I, I don't think we should discuss the victim, and we probably shouldn't spend too much time discussing Mason Greenwood. I.e., we can't do anything that identifies the person who made the allegations. No. And we can't really discuss what the allegations were. No. They were actual charges, or they were allegations? They were, they were charges brought by the police, and a prosecution began, and, and, the, and the CPS dropped the, dropped the case. And so we can't either say who made the allegations or what the allegations were... And the reason for that is because we can't risk identifying the person who made them. Broadly, that's correct, yeah. All right, okay, let's go on. Last week, Manchester United indicated they were thinking of rehabilitating Greenwood into their team. He's a very talented player. He played for England. He's, he'd been with the club since he was seven. Then, at the beginning of this week, having faced a public outcry over this decision, United announced that they were actually ending their relationship with Greenwood and that he would be leaving the club. Because they were embarrassed about this story breaking. 
Yes, and well, it's also it's a big problem if you you know you're t- they they Mary Earps, for example, is a Manchester United player. It, you know, women have very not surprising men, women and men, but uh, have especially strong views on this sort of thing. And um, it was a very bad reputational position for them to be in. And then this week, Andrew Butler and Phoebe Davis at Tortoise uh, revealed that the um, United were one of of half the Premier League clubs who had not bothered to implement training um, sexual education for young for for first team footballers, education of consent, the, you know those sorts of um, practices. Um, which is which they are expected to do. Well, the Premier League says that these were mandatory rules they brought in last year. Manchester United said that they didn't realise they were mandatory, and they're not the only club not to have done them. But I think what it's really shown, this story shows, is that the top-level professional football, which is a very big and successful industry in this country, has no system for dealing with these kinds of offences. Charges of this sort fall between the Football Association, the Premier League, and perhaps also the um, Professional Footballers Association. And none of them seem to have a strict policy on what you should do if uh, a player is accused of domestic abuse. And I, so I went to look at what the NFL, which is, the, I think, the comparable American sport, do for this thing. And they have a totally separate structure that runs parallel to the legal uh, process that, m- that might arise from an assault case of something of that sort. And it makes quite clear what must happen if a player is complained of. Clubs automatically get fined if they don't notify the NFL's commissioning, commissioner's office of a charge of any sort against a player. So there's a process that starts immediately and it always brings a suspension. Immediately. Pay, a paid suspension immediately while a special counsel appointed by the NFL looks into the case. If uh, domestic abuse, for example, is discovered to, to have actually occurred, the first punishment is a six-week unpaid suspension. A second offence is a lifetime ban from the sport. All of that runs parallel, not, not, not over the legal process. So if, in other words, if it's a rape charge or something like that and you're, you know, you're convicted of rape, that's the end of it. You, you, know, you just go to jail and, and your career's over anyway. And there's nothing like that. That, that exists in football. I've talked to a couple of my, my, my friends among the football correspondents. There's no central, organised, disciplinary process. And, and I think it's time those organisations got together because it would suit them all. Manchester United have just lost a very, very valuable asset. And it would suit them to much better to have a process that dealt with all these things. And it would have removed them from this very difficult decision they've had to take over Greenwood, who is, after all, they do have some obligations as as an employer. Ben, back in the day, this would have landed on your desk because people have come to you and said, you're the cultural secretary, you oversee football amongst everything else. And they would have said, what do you want to do, Minister? Because there's an allegation, it's been dropped, there is a cloud of suspicion around the individual, but no charges, let alone conviction, what is the correct conduct? Because the person who's really in the crosshairs now, amongst others, is Richard Arnold, the chief executive of Man United. 
What's your direction to the clubs and to the Premier League and how to conduct this? <laughs> Do you want my honest answer? Yes, yeah. I would have left it completely to my sports minister, <laughs> Gerald Sutcliffe, who, as a Secretary of State, and I'm making a confession, a politician very, very rarely makes it, have almost no interest in sport whatsoever. I'm one of those people, and I'm sure there are lots out there who get really riled if a sports story leads any news bulletin. <laughs> but on that issue, I said, Jerry. I, I defer to your better experience and better knowledge. And I would have let him do whatever he thought was appropriate. But, but they would say to you, Ben, actually, they'd push back and they'd say to you, this is not a sports story. What we're really dealing with here a is football governance. No, not football governance. We're not into size of goals. Don't Me worry too. about that. We're not. No, no. What we're talking about here is what happens. You've seen it at the CBI. You've seen yeah. it at Tesco. What happens when there are allegations made against conduct and particularly around sexual assault and harassment? They're not proven in a court of law but they have taken hold in the court of public opinion. The organisation needs to react, be seen to react. What's the guidance from politicians on how to deal with this? Well, what probably would have happened was that my sports minister would have called Manchester United and all the other clubs that hadn't implemented this mandatory training and ask them why not. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't have direct power over clubs as a minister. You can, you can say things to the media which may be helpful or unhelpful. Uh, but football governs itself. Uh, I've always been very suspicious of the quality of football governance, and this really just kind of, I think. Uh, confirms all the prejudices I have about the way that football as an industry is run in this country. And to be perfectly honest, because as a personal view, I don't think it matters. It's not. I know it matters a lot to an awful lot of people, mm -hmm. but in the big scheme of things, if football wants to make a mess of how it runs itself, that's up to it, really. It doesn't, people aren't, aren't you know, my constituents are not going to particularly going to suffer as a result of that compared with everything else they face in their lives. At this stage, we get to decide the running order. Um, ben, I know this is the first time you've joined. Excuse me, I'm, going to I'm formally objecting to Ben since he admitted that no, <laughs> he, 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 that he would under no circumstances vote for a sports story of any sort going up the top of the page. So there we go. He's going, you know, that whole future career of sports editor of the Telegraph, it's just disappearing. <laughs> I would also like to say that Ben has provided a masterclass, given that he's never been part of this news meeting before, in how you absolutely destroy both <laughs> other, people, other people's stories. I'm so sorry. There's, no, 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 there's literally nothing to see here. Um, but Ben, the deal is, you've worked in newsrooms before, mm. so there is a sort of benign or not that benign editorial dictatorship at the end. I try and have a go and yeah. decide what the running order should be. Before we get there... Um, what's your judgment if you can't pick the British Museum story on what should lead the news or the other two? Well, given what I said about sport, it would have to be just the latest chapter in the long two-year running saga that has been and will continue to be the American presidential election. A news, a news bulletin that would open, <laughs> a news that's not particularly relevant Selling or important to world. you. Yeah. <laughs> Jess, what would yours be? I'd go for the British Museum. Despite that slight on my story, <laughs> I would I would go for the British Museum. I think there's a lot more to uncover there. Keith? And despite the bias of the, uh, of the presenter, I have to go with the museum story too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, funnily enough, I am the opposite of Ben. I'm absolutely fascinated by US politics. I think that it tells you so much about, amongst other things, where our own politics is going to go. And I think there is so much at stake in finding a route to a presidential uh, candidate, not to mention a president who's not Donald Trump, that 
following every spit and cough of the Republican primary fascinates me. That said, I'd run it third because uh, I think that I also disagree with Ben that the Mason Greenwood story won't speak to constituents in Exeter. Actually, I think it speaks a great deal. No, no, I don't mean – sorry, not speaks to, that it doesn't impact their lives in as direct a way as so many other things they're dealing with. I see the point. But I think these things, these stories – feel accessible because they're about the ways in which people in power handle people of influence and that is such a significant thing in people's lives. So I would actually run the Mason Greenwood story second. The reason I would lead on the um, uh, on the British Museum story is it's a story. It's a story which has uh, theft and mystery it has institutional or even best sort of bureaucratic obstructionism, that kind of awful culture where people shun you away when they should really open the doors to you. And it opens up a big, big, I think, question about Britain in the 2020s, which is are we engaged and open with the world or are we uh, defensive? Are we willing to engage with Greece and Nigeria? And so it's a story that goes places. And by the way, the cast of characters whether it's Hartwig Fisher or George Osborne or this Danish collector, um, not to mention life on eBay, it travels. So for that reason, I run with uh, the culture of culture, uh, British Museum first, um, leadership in football and the case of Mason Greenwood. And who are those guys? (laughs) The Republican primary. And one woman. And one woman. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Jess. A big thank you to you, Ben, for coming in. Remember one thing that uh, I hope the conversation about the lionesses amongst other things has shown is we really are keen to hear from you what you think should lead the news, whether you think our judgments were right, whether we missed the stories of the week altogether. Do just get in touch. Email newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. It's a bank holiday in the UK on Monday, so we're going to be back at the end of next week, the very end uh, of August, uh, the 1st of September, I think it'll be then. Do listen in then. And Ben, for your enlightenment, enjoyment, and a touch of old-fashioned, barnstorming American politics, we're going to leave you with the sound of Vivek Ramaswamy pointing you (laughs) towards an American future. Oh, God help us. God is real. There are two genders. Fossil fuels are a requirement for human prosperity. Reverse racism is racism. An open border is not a border. Parents determine the education of their children. The nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to man. Tortoise. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.